thanks to all of you for coming to tonight's event. Uh, I'm particularly happy to introduce Imtiaz Gul to an audience like this at this particular time, when the topic of his talk is so timely and so urgent. So I, I would like to repeat Jamie's thanks to all the people who have helped make this event possible. Uh, their representatives are all sitting with us here. And say a bit more about the American Institute of Pakistan Studies, which is perhaps not as well known as we would like it to be here. Uh, this uh, is a bilateral Pakistan-US organization whose mission, so to speak, is the development of relations between the academics of the two countries and improvement of the state of knowledge about Pakistan in the U.S. So in pursuit of these objectives, AIPS invites visitors to the U.S. in the Pakistan Lecture Series, okay, uh, under which uh, Imtiaz Gul has come today, uh, and provides both pre-doctoral and senior fellowships for U.S. scholars for research on Pakistan. Uh, if any of you happen to be scholars with an interest on, in doing research on Pakistan, you can read about that on the AIPS website or you can ask me about it. We've been tremendously assisted in the local support for this event by the Center for International Studies, Committee for Southern Asian Studies, the South Asian Language and Area Center, and the Chicago Booth Pakistan Club, which I have just learned about uh, last year. This is an association of uh, alumni of the Booth School of Business here. So now a bit about our speaker. Having done his undergraduate work in economics, statistics, and English, and an MA in German, Imtiaz Gul is now a well-known independent scholar and journalist. He's executive director of the Center for Research and Security Studies in Islamabad, which he founded in December 2007. This center is a think tank run by civil society activists, which works in the areas of governance, security and terrorism, and the environment. The center also has an advocacy role and organizes conferences, seminars, and workshops to disseminate the findings of research produced by the center. It has published reports on issues such as the water and power crisis, the links between peace building and the jihadi curriculum in Pakistan, democracy in the context of Pakistan, the Taliban, and practices and standards of governance. Imtiaz Gul is the author of three books on ongoing security concerns in South Asia. First is The Unholy Nexus, Afghan Relations Under the Taliban, published in 2002. The Al-Qaeda Connection, Taliban and Terror in the Tribal Areas, 2009. And most recently, a revised edition of this book, published now as The Most Dangerous Place, Pakistan's Lawless Frontier, in 2010. He's also edited a volume, Islam and Liberalism, 2002, on the consequences of the U.S.-led coalition war against terrorism in Afghanistan. So in addition to these books, he's written numerous articles on similar topics, which I won't mention now for time constraints. And in addition to his publications, he's an active journalist. Besides having reported for the German foreign language broadcaster Deutsche Welle, he also appears as a commentator on CNN, Al Jazeera, and BBC. He regularly, write, regularly writes for Foreign Policy, The Wall Street Journal, and Pakistan's influential weekly, The Friday Times. So please join me now in welcoming Imtiaz Gul to what promises to be a very stimulating conversation. Thank you. Good evening. I'm overwhelmed. 
Thank you very much, uh, Alina. Uh, thank you also to the organizers, the hosts, the American Institute of um, Pakistan Studies and um, the member universities uh, for allowing me to be here and poison your minds about Pakistan. Um, you know, I'm often asked by uh, fellow countrymen, you know, that perhaps I'm uh, discrediting the country having titled my book, The Most Dangerous Place. Um, but it was not my choice. It, was, it came from the mouth of uh, President Obama on 27th of March, 2009. And the publishers chose to place that one phrase as the title. Now, it's a country currently under the international microscopic scrutiny for precisely the reasons uh, that are currently the, the subject of debate in the United States as, as well as elsewhere, um, Afghanistan, and then Waziristan, our lawless frontier. So it's, um, it's not an easy task talking to people in a country as, as far away, as distant as the United States, and then coming down to Chicago, which uh, appears to me as a region of contrasts. And perhaps if we could uh, juxtapose, um, Pakistan is also a, a, a place of contrast with Islamabad, perhaps synonymous or some similar in character to, to Hyde Park. Uh, and then there are islands of poverty, islands of poor governance around it. I'm talking of Pakistan. Like if you look at Balochistan, is the most uh, backward uh, province, small in size, the largest, uh, small in population, the largest um, in size. Um, it's a country of 100, at least 175 million people uh, with a per capita of over $1,000, which mean, it basically means almost 60% of uh, Pakistan's population lives uh, off less than $2 a day. Now, I would say contrasting it is the ruling class, which is industrialists, businessmen, the journals, businessmen, uh, some tycoons, I would say also in the uh, services sector, financial sector, it's about 50,000, maybe at, five, at most uh, 75,000. And 50,000 people had their loans written off the last three years worth about $5 billion. But look at the other side, look at the poverty in which the majority of uh, Pakistanis live. Um, the contrast, uh, some of the figures actually are mind-boggling. If you look at this country, it finds itself in turmoil that it has the seventh largest army, is the seventh nuclear power. It has seven peaks, which are above 8,000 meters. At, and I think uh, there four are the world's tallest peaks. Then uh, the social sector spending is um, less than percent of the GDP, whereas the army, I think, gets double that, the defense budget. So this is the preamble to the land of contrast that I come from. And uh, 
perhaps we could uh, let me try. I'm do doing it for the first time because I usually sit uh, by the computer. Let's see. Now, we call it Pakistan's uh, double jeopardy, uh, the, the situation that Pakistan finds itself in, that um, we're being into this counterinsurgency campaign and um, then the resultant blowback, then the super floods. They were the, were the super floods uh, after a century or so. Um, if you look at this image, it's like many snakes coming down from the north into the south and assuming the form of a big monster, which is chasing people, uh, displacing people, and destroying crops, destroying houses. The World Bank has currently, I think, come up with um, uh, an assessment uh, which says that at least $9 billion worth of um, damages caused by the floods. Uh, it could be $1 billion plus, plus or minus. But the, the saddest part of this is that the flood struck, and usually um, conflicts and uh, calamities strike uh, the poor the most. And this is what happened. This is a, uh, if you look at um, how the water, the, the deluge, you know, began from, um, from the north and kept displacing people, killing people. The human losses were not that big, but um, the actual devastation on ground, the de devastation of the livelihoods, I think this is what uh, will hurt Pakistanis the most in the, in the months and a couple of years to come if uh, there's not enough uh, response, enough uh, redressal of the problems. This was again a, 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 an illustration of how much population was affected. It was between uh, 18 to 20 million houses damaged. Now, this was a direct impact that uh, settlements along major rivers and their tributaries from the north to the south simply washed out. You know, it's very difficult to imagine the ex extent of damages that this wa water has caused. But once you fly over the area from the north to the south or, or vice versa, only then you realize it becomes mind-boggling. We were constantly, we flew over water for hours. So, uh, and that water took time to recede, particularly down in the so south, because at places the river is above than the ground level. So the water, there was two, three feet uh, high water, and it's not going to recede. So about half a million farmers uh, got affected directly. Uh, in central Pakistan and in southern Pakistan just because they are unable to go for the next crop. So they have lost the next crop, they have they lost their stocks, they lost their seeds. So this is the uh, jeopardy in which uh, half a million practically families find themselves in. Now, this was a survey that the World Food Program um, undertook together with the Sustainable Development Policy Institute, and it was before the floods. And it said that uh, the food insecurity in Pakistan is almost 48.8%. Um, uh, they mapped up some of the districts, and um, they found 60 of Pakistan's 135 districts as uh, food insecure. Uh, and I think this food insecurity will increase now um, in the months to come. <clears throat> now, this is a post-flood scenario. Some uh, 
facts about it. Uh, I hope now the, with the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank having done, ha having done the uh, damage needs, need assessment, some real rehabilitation work will uh, get underway very soon. Now the other, that was a natural calamity, now the political conflict, the war on terror that we became partner, partners in in uh, October 2001. Um, the violent uh, response, everybody knows, I mean the only news that come out of Pakistan is of suicide bombings, is of ambushes, is of military operations. Um, and it has created a sense of insecurity to the extent that I think almost uh, all major countries have standing advisories for their citizens not to visit Pakistan. Um, I'm not justifying the title of my book, The Most Dangerous Place. Um, but what has happened as a result of the blowback, uh, the reaction by the Al-Qaeda affiliated organizations, which I call the local Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda auxiliaries, that they have symbol systematically been attacking the symbols of a functional state. If you look at uh, the targets, there have been mosques, there have been uh, religious processions, there have been uh, schools, hospitals, uh, as well as the security establishment, the police stations, police checkposts, army, uh, even the general headquarters, which is the heart of Pakistan's military, uh, was seized uh, for, by, by attackers for almost 22 hours, um, 10th of October last year. That's a brief statistics about uh, the death toll that we've got uh, so far, more than 31,000 deaths, uh, 244 suicide bombings. And this year, already, I think, so far, we have more than 50 suicide bombings. Uh, and particular targets have been the areas around Peshawar and uh, Lahore. <coughs> Peshawar, it's my city. My entire extended family lives there. So this is... Uh, I think it symbolizes the cost of conflict, uh, where over 70% industry is, is, is shut down, 30,000 industrial workers have lost their jobs, and uh, the local businessmen, they reckon that the province has incurred the losses uh, to the tune of um, $35 billion in the last uh, seven, seven years or so. Now, what emerges, the picture that emerges uh, as a result of the discourse and the news coverage is one that individual hunger, then might, mighty military, the drone attacks, and protest demonstrations. Um, so this is the, the stereotypical image of Pakistan that has emerged in the last uh, seven eight years. Um, before we go further, can we um, play that, uh, show the slides, this Pakistan image thing? No, this is the Yeah, it's okay. So what has happened the last uh, seven, eight years that we have 
Pakistan is embattled in a uh, in a situation wherein it, it has become basically a battleground for war of interests between Al Qaeda and the America, United States of America. So on top, the higher the way it has developed, the insurgency has evolved. That you have on top Al Qaeda. We don't know Osama bin Laden is alive or not, but Iman al-Zawahiri, I think, is certainly still alive. Then under them, the Afghan warlords like the Afghani, Jalaluddin Afghani, Mullah Omar, and Hikmatyar. And then they have their Pakistani followers, supporters, facilitators. Um, they have Taliban in South Waziristan, two factions. Um, one is led by Hafiz Gul, uh, Mullah Nazir Ahmed, the other one by uh, Kimullah Mesud. Um, so this is the image that Pakistan has today. All these bearded people, uh, turban bearded, uh, as if you know they were stalking the roads, um, streets in in Pakistan, and obviously it's uh, I think uh, one of the it's also a bas basically a climax of what uh, we did together with the United States against the Soviet Russians. Um, is one of, one of the consequences of that war that uh, the civilized world fought against the infidel Russians in, in the 1980s. So we, we were left behind with these people. Now, Hizbe Islami, I mean, I just thought these are some of the affected areas. Now, this is the kind of image that Pakistan currently suffers from. And the other side, there is another side of Pakistan, which goes unnoticed, which simply gets subsumed in the in the news about violence, terror. Can we play the DVD? <clears throat> I thought, you know, should provide some relief from these gory details. So this is all what plays up in 50 Pakistani television channels. No mullahs want this. But the question is how many mullahs are there? What is the percentage of Ali Zafar, you know, who is also singing in India, producing albums there? some of the fashion shows taking place in uh, Karachi in Lahore. Channels, the rest are entertainment, infotainment. 
Okay, so I thought I should provide you with some comic relief, you know. <laughs> um, I think I'll stop there. Having provided two contrasts, there are many issues. Uh, I'm sure you would like to ask about that and uh, well, welcome any questions that you have. And then I think we can take it forward. Uh, Jamie, do you want to conduct? First of all, what are your thoughts about the media, the U.S. media coverage, what the flood do you think was sufficient? Um, and then the second thing is, um, there was a recent news about Osama bin Laden being in the northwest of Pakistan or something. What do you make of that? Why do they give out that kind of news? What, what are they trying to say? Who is trying to say what? The, the media. The CNN? <laughs> The American intelligence uh, security apparatus. Uh, yeah. Uh, did you follow the question? One was about the uh, extent of uh, news coverage of coverage of the floods in the American media, and the other one, whether Osama bin Laden is somewhere being protected by the Pakistani security agencies. To the second question first. This has been a pet theme. Um, I guess at this moment of uh, time, once again, the American uh, security establishment in particular itself is in, in turmoil. Uh, there are so many squabbles playing out against each other in Washington, D.C., State Department and the Department of Defense. Bob Woodward's book, Obama's Wars, I think, provides a very, very good illustration of the policy confusions uh, that have existed in, in, in Washington for so many years, but the entire blame has been going on, being piled on Pakistan, being piled on Karzai, and so many others. So it would probably be just another uh, ruse, another excuse to mount pressure on, on Pakistan. I personally, I don't think whether he, Osama bin Laden is alive at all. Uh, I may be wrong, but this is what uh, Imanul Zawahiri, yes, he is prob most probably still alive. And uh, then also, you know, there's this uh, quite an ambiguity about what the U.S. defense establishment says and what NATO says, because uh, the CNN, I think, quoted unnamed uh, NATO military officials. I mean, what's unnamed? This means you can't challenge it. You can't question it. So if they have the proof uh, should, I think, say publicly, state it publicly, put it on record, rather than remaining unnamed and anonymous. As for the uh, flood coverage, I think it was uh, perhaps uh, our Pakistani friends here uh, could tell us whether it was adequate. But I guess uh, generally, the, after initial uh, reluctance, uh, the, the overall response has been very good, I, I would say. Enough, both from the, I think, American public uh, as well as from the government. 
I mean, I was surprised uh, at the goodwill that was flowing into Pakistan, not only from here, but also from Europe. In Germany, for instance, the public, just private donations, went beyond $210 million within two weeks. So that showed, sorry? No, donated. Donated. Within two weeks, uh, you know, they open the accounts to the, to the public. Uh, I mean, it, more or less it happened the same, same way here in the United States. And those 200, more than $210 million are coming to Pakistan, of course, via their own NGOs system. Uh, are you happy with that? Also a Zardari fan. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think this uh, question of dis potential disintegration staring us in the face. Um, yes, at times it sounds very sexy. Uh, the disintegration of a country as strategically located as, as Pakistan. Um, there are the issues of uh, misgovernance, poverty, um, the predominance of the military uh, in the politics. But um, I think there is a, another discourse, another narrative taking form, taking shape right now. That is um, the international community. There's a, a forum called the Friends of Democratic Pakistan, which was created in April 2009 in Tokyo. Then um, there's this group of G8, and there's another forum called Pakistan Development Forum. Now, they have all been consulting very closely. I mean, Zardari, keep Zardari aside. Zardari doesn't represent Pakistan. Uh, Constitutionally, yes, but real politically, no, right? But I think there is some sort of realization, I perceive this within, in Washington, in Germany, in the UK, that this country must be saved or must be protected, it should not go down. That's why there's a series of consultations. The day before, I think, the, the meeting of the Friends of Democratic Pakistan ended after two days of cons consultations on how to respond uh, to the post-flood situation. And I think that is a ray of hope. 
on the one hand, as far as the external factors are concerned. Domestically, I think Pakistan is redefining itself, despite all the misgovernance. If you look at uh, the judiciary, for the first time in Pakistan's 63 years of existence, the judiciary is performing the role as envisioned in the Constitution. It's putting its foot down. It may be seen as, at times, as, as partisan, vis-a-vis -vis the people's ruling Pakistan People's Party and the president. But I think they are, for the first time, asserting themselves. All 17, 20 judges together, and almost all the decisions, the rulings that have come in recent months, they've been unanimous. This is unprecedented. Then you have at the back of the judiciary, the media, the private electronic media that has emerged as a parallel, very powerful stakeholder. It is the coverage on the private television channels. It's like a genie. It's out of the bottle. Nobody will be able to rebottle it. It's simply against the current of times. So I think that theory of uh, possible disintegration uh, doesn't hold much currency. And also, I think people, a lot of people talk uh, about it in the context of Balochistan. You know, Balochistan is the smallest province with um, five, maybe five to six million population. But the majority of the population is Pashtuns. It could be like 60%, I guess. And they are living in the border regions, which border Afghanistan, right? Balochis are living between the so-called urban centers. There are no urban centers in Balochistan. There's a semblance of urban centers, but between the urban centers and the, the tribal, the border regions. And then the Balochi separatist movements, they are fiercely divided. Baloch nationalist political parties, which are represented in the parliament, they're also divided. So to assume that um, these divided political and militant forces would enforce the separation of Balochistan from Pakistan, I don't think is realistic. Does it answer your question? Um, I know there have been um, target killings, um, I know from extended family of Punjabis in Balochistan over the last year, and a lot of Punjabis are moving out of Balochistan. It's the smallest province as in population-wise, but it is, like you pointed out, one of the largest provinces. It is the largest province in the country. Mm -hmm. So there are target killings going on of Punjabis in Balochistan that's forcing an E-plus of Punjabis from Balochistan. And of course, we've got a Pashtun separatist movement going on in the NWFP. But Balochistan, strategically speaking, economically, does have the gas supply for the country. It also has the port to the Arabian Sea. If you were to cross a pipeline, it was such a favorite theory in Pakistan of pipelines coming from Central Asia to Afghanistan, going to Balochistan. So, so I'm saying, to me, uh, and from what I hear, it seems like a pretty real threat over the next six months of Pakistan sort of with the food program, donating seeds, food prices going up. So the chances, that's what I was asking you, are you saying they're pretty, the next six months I think are crucial. 
summary parts of disintegration or sort of crucial of whether the next crop comes through or not? Yeah, there are going to be very difficult times for the majority of the population, uh, but not to the extent of uh, bringing the country to the brink, I guess. It will be very difficult, and our people have gotten used to it. But, and also, there's no insurgency in the northwestern regions. It's terrorism. It's terrorism being perpetrated by vested interests, by the forces uh, which want to destabilize Pakistan. As simple as that. It's not insurgency. Sorry. Al-Qaeda and its uh, Pakistani affiliates, they are a nuisance. They are a big destabilizing factor. But I don't think they can outgovern the governing structures because those governing structures are also being supported by the international community. It's a very, I think, minuscule. I mean, if you look at the entire the inflow of aid in cash and kind, whatever the government and the international NGOs and local NGOs are doing, uh, I think uh, it's, it's far, far more than what um, the foundations for Lashkar e Taiba, this Falahi Insaniyat, for Jashi Muhammad, and uh, for Khidmat Foundation. There are four or five big uh, outfits, uh, foundations, which are in, involved in this charity relief rehabilitation work. But I think that is minuscule. Uh, compared to the scale of uh, the international and national governmental effort. In the beginning, you pointed out the <coughs> difference in the economic status. Most Pakistanis earning, you know, living on two dollars a day, whereas these uh, vast, uh, just now 500 or so, you mentioned. Or 50,000 50, tycoons and millionaires and so forth. Then, when you switch to the cultural aspect, which you call the entertainment show, uh, you showed bearded men <laughs> and then fashionable women. Uh, now, I'm sure those people who are earning or living on $2 a day don't give a damn for either bearded men or the fashionable women. Uh, so who speaks for those people for whom you showed concern at first? Who speaks for them in the national politics now? Is there any voice for them? Is there any possibility of a voice for them? or they have no choice but to go to these bearded men for whatever support they can get. Well, um, who speaks for them is the national parliament. The 
the practice, you know, the electoral pro process and then vo people go to vote and elect their representatives, that is the standard operating procedure for all functional or partially functional or dysfunctional democracies, <laughs> right? But... Um, you mean to say that the Gilani, the pra present prime minister or the... Yeah, he's part of the Mahal. they speak for those people. No, I didn't say this. You know, I didn't say this. I'll be very uh, careful with the choice of words. I said this is a standard standard operating procedure for a state. This is what Pakistan goes through. Now, that's an altogether different matter. Whether they speak, they do. Whether they work for the common man. Whether they're sensitive about the needs, about the concerns of the common people. Um, I would say largely no. They are the, the ruling class. That's what I talked about, 50,000 to 75,000 people. Um, it's the big political families, aristocrats, the, the landlords, big businessmen. They're all somehow connected, related, friendships. Um, and you can, I think, gauge it from the fact, uh, it's a very interesting... Um, Statistics. Um, there's a couple of uh, two very brilliant economists uh, in, at the Lahore University of Management Sciences. These conducted uh, a study on um, the taxation that is in vogue in Pakistan. They be, they believe they worked out that um, the indirect taxation is about 78 percent in Pakistan, and in the last 20 years the burden of taxes on the poorest went up by 17.4% and it declined by 25.9% for those who can afford for the richest. So this is again a contrast, you know, that the ruling elite sitting in the parliament or the technocrats, they are tailoring laws in a way that benefit them the most. So it's a very inequitable justice system. I think this is what um, uh, a lot of people are currently talking about. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, said something very recently at the at this meeting in Brussels. She, I think, didn't attend it, but a day before, I think she was part of the deliberations. And uh, I think she issued a very strong statement uh, by saying that it's absolutely unacceptable for those with means in Pakistan not to be doing their fair share to help their own people, um, while taxpayers in Europe, the US, and other contributing countries are all chipping in. And she also, I think, um, said that, uh, this is a quote from her, it must go beyond the current under 2% of the GDP. Uh, it, it was about the social sector spending. And the tax to GDP ratio is hardly 9% in Pakistan, which means basically 9% people are paying taxes uh, in, a, in a nation of at least 175 million, compared to 17% in India and 35% each in uh, Brazil and Argentine. So, yeah, I mean, this is a big challenge uh, uh, that uh, the ruling elite, the those, the haves, I mean, they really have to dole out money, they have to be ready, uh, devise a new taxation regime 
I think, which is equitable, which burdens the poor less and uh, burdens the, the rich ones more accordingly, basically, to their, in, in uh, correlation to their, to their incomes. Because we're obviously, you know, coming up with a great plan to reach Pakistan, and, and you mentioned somewhere that the floods yeah. were obviously you know, a great moment of tragedy for Pakistan, and you mentioned that World Bank put uh, the estimated damages at $9 billion. And, and one would assume that any money coming in to help reconstruct and rebuild would be good money. And, and how then would you respond, or, or how then would you? analyze Pakistan's response of refusing money from India? Well, I think uh, whoever wants to help Pakistan, uh, the government should accept that. I mean, I have no, I'm not government representative. Uh, I don't speak for the government. I'm just speaking here as a Pakistani. Uh, whoever uh, intends well for Pakistan, for the poor, devastated people of Pakistan, uh, I think is welcome to to bring in his money, his or her or their money. Um, coming back, actually, the part of answer to your question would was that uh, the ruling class is insensitive, uh, so self-centered. But uh, the solution for Pakistan, for the concern for Pakistan's uh, dominant majority, will spring from within. You know it. You know, we are, a lot of people talk about corruption, for instance, uh, of the ruling party. What do you do? How do you stop it? It's uh, the United States, it's the European Union, for instance, who partnered with um, General Pervez Musharraf because it suited them then. Uh, so in, in the process, they perpetuated a military dictatorship. And the military dictatorship is always personality-driven. So. That means when the person leaves, he leaves the governance structures in a mess because those governance structures over the last eight, nine years were largely occupied by military men. And military men grow up in a very regimented barrack mentality. They either command or obey. And they, in the process, distort the governance capabilities. They stunt the growth of Govern, uh, the governmental institutions. So what we need is continuity of the democratic process, however it is. Solution is not coming to, going to come from outside. We can't import honest people. We can't import mechanisms, govern, governance mechanism. I you remember when Pervez Musharraf came, the picture in America was he was shown playing with dogs. So he was a good kind of person. Okay, and the same cultural thing is being shown about the good people in Pakistan are those who are going to these fashion shows, who are, you know, who are more close to the Western image. You see, that is the issue. I see, you had problem with the, with the video. I was just showing you the, I thought, I. Th I thought I was showing you the other side of Pakistan as well. That. <laughs> uh, yes, please. 
Thanks for a great presentation. Uh, we at Chicago take great pride in any kind of empirical research, so a lot of facts that you show this audience is, I'm sure, very well appreciated. My question, sir, is uh, you, you also do a comparison between Chicago and Pakistan. Chicago being the third largest city, as it is now in the US, it was also destroyed almost completely. But the designers, the, the planners of the city at the time thought of that catastrophe as an opportunity, not the end of the world. Do you see any discussion, dialogue, narrative, any, any kind of progress or thinking in those terms that here we have an opportunity, as big as this calamity has been, here's an opportunity for us to do things properly this time. Because the reason I'm asking this question, there's a philosophical need to think in those terms as well, so that we move away from some of the painful costs that we have, that this, this thing is gonna blow up, it's gonna disintegrate. That's, re that's really painful to a lot of Pakistanis to even think in those terms, whereas we have a chance to think positively. Yeah, we must think positively. And I hope we don't have to destroy Islamabad before we seize the opportunity. <laughs> um, I think uh, there are a lot of people, the civil society, um, within the media there's a lot of debate that we must really turn this disaster into an opportunity. And um, somehow, as I said earlier, Pakistan probably is going through a, a re redefining moment in which various institutions like the presidency, the Supreme Court, the army, they are at loggerheads. But the biggest hope that I see, the ray of hope, the glimmer of hope, is in the fact, for the first time in 63 years, two major political parties are not at, at each other's throat. Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, may be out of the government, but he has still stayed by and behind the People's Party, the government of uh, Mr. Asif Ali Zardari, just to prevent any non-democratic interference. You know, this never happened before. So two major political parties which share m almost 75% of the votes between them, they are together, right? This is, I think, a very, I mean, we, we sh shouldn't think of today, think of tomorrow and the day after. So if I take a dispassionate look at this, this is a major change that has occurred to Pakistan. Then number two, the judiciary, that they seize a moment after General Musharraf suspended the chief justice and then eventually through emergency removed almost 60 judges. And once they were restored, now they, they think that they will be counted if they stick together, right? So that, that is the second big hope, I think, that we perhaps can, can look up to. And the media, private media, I think, is... So somehow, there's a lot of debate going on. Uh, uh, I'm partly amused, partly also saddened by the discourse that takes place in the United States among the Pakistani diaspora in Europe. There's a lot of sense of despondency. Yes, I mean, we live there. We also face uh, a lot of um, hardships uh, in our daily lives. Uh, you know, people like Dr. Farooq Khan, for instance, was a very enlightened, uh, bold uh, religious scholar. He was gunned down early this month, uh, and many people like him have gone down just because they've been publicly condemning uh, 
these uh, so-called Taliban, basically I call them terrorists, they are not, they're criminals, they're thugs, you know, who are out not only to destroy the interests of uh, the country, but also to destroy the image of Islam. Islam is not that brutal. Yes, I mean, there are varied interpretations uh, of, of Islam, but uh, this doesn't mean that it's a, it's a religion that condones suicide bombings. It's a religion that condones uh, killing of uh, non-Muslims, no. So, yes, um, these are the, despite all this that's happening, there's still some rays of hope, and let's, I think, remain optimistic. I wonder how much the reformed elite that you envision would have invested in continuing conflict with India so that conceivably one could imagine just as the European economic community was formed uniting France and Germany who had been at war with each other for about a thousand years, could one imagine an economic community bring together, for example, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Thank you. Well, I think the European Union was um, earlier divided not because of religion. It became united not because of religion, but because of uh, economic, I think, synergies they wanted to, to, to build. And its uh, nationalism was one force, you know, that led to the bulk Balkanization of Yugoslavia, but eventually they're all getting together. I think they see the economic integration as their eventual salvation. Now, as for India-Pakistan, it's a um, very tricky question, actually, very tricky relationship as well. They are separated by religion and separated by decades of uh, mutual hatred. There are two conflicting narratives. Uh, that emanate from Islamabad and from uh, New Delhi. Uh, and uh, both establishments, military establishments uh, in Islamabad uh, and in New Delhi have thrived on those narratives. Somehow, uh, the marrying those narratives, finding a middle ground, uh, is, is very, very difficult. Um, you know, what the coalition against terrorism and the the American tendency uh, in the past seven, eight years to view Pakistan through the Indian prism, I think further complicated issues. Uh, this again, I would say Bob Woodward's book is a is a very good, I think, pointer. Uh, it's a good document to see as to how what went wrong in in the United States before. One could point fingers at Pakistan. The, there's a problem between India and Pakistan. So it would be naive to believe that the United States or European Union uh, would suggest you should mend your fences with India and the Pakistani security establishment turns the corner and say, yes, we're ready. I wish it were that, that easy. That would benefit our 175 million people. That would benefit the poor of India. Uh, but you also have to, I think, look, uh, look at uh, certain things from the establishment's point of view. The, what the Pakistani military establishment has been doing is not unique to Pakistan alone. You know, President Obama here, I would say, has, is right now a hostage to the American security apparatus that consists of about 16 
various intelligence and security agencies. The same happens uh, in, in England. The same happens um, in India. So they, they are doing simply, the, for instance, the ISI or the military are simply doing, performing their primary duty. But the fault lies in the decision-making. The decision-making rests also with, with the military, with the military establishment. And it has a particular view that is grounded in history. So to change that view, the United States shall also have to engage with India. Uh, for instance, there are simple facts. Out of uh, 13 Indian strike corps, six are deployed within 100 kilometer of the border to Pakistan. The Indians say we don't have a problem with, uh, with, Pakistan, uh, with Pakistan. Our concern is China. Right? As if they would, their tanks would roll over the Himalayan mountains and uh, uh, move into, into, into China. Um, somehow they have to, the, and the, the militaries, I think, go by the tangible physical assets of the, of the enemy. It, it's true for all. You know? So if you accept the Indian argument that our concern is China, which happens to be now the biggest trading partner of India. So then you also have to accept the Pakistan establishment's viewpoint that our concern is India because half of their strike capability is Pakistan specific. The same way we should also accept the Afghanistan, Afghan argument that our concern is Pakistan which wants to hegemonize Afghanistan. So somehow you have to apply the rules universally, not selectively. So this has been the problem here that the, the US administration, beginning from the Bush administration, started looking at Pakistan through the Indian prism. And it's not easy to untangle this cord. You know, right now, our government says we have foreign exchange reserves worth uh, $16 billion. But this is all IMF borrowed money. <laughs> right. The last uh, two and a half years, we have borrowed uh, $16 billion. Now, what is the consequence? This is also interesting. Before we uh, discuss whether you know, the reforms have been implemented or not, uh, Pakistan's foreign debt currently stands at uh, almost um, $60 billion, right? Now, the debt servicing, just, uh, just the interest payments on these $60 billion come to $3 billion. And the, if they're also, Pakistan is also re returning part of the principal payment. So a total of at least five 
and a half billion dollars is going back every year, right? Now, you are hit by the floods, which devastates, destroys at least 10% of the food stock. Um, it also destroys part of the infrastructure. And then the World Bank or the IMF then demands uh, implementation of uh, new reforms. I think they are asking for the moon at, in the current circumstances. And actually, I was uh, going through the, some papers, and um, Oxfam is a British organization. One of its spokespersons uh, said something. Uh, they have formed a coalition, and they want to. They have kicked off a campaign asking the international community to at least put a moratorium on Pakistan's debt servicing for a few years, if not cancel it. And she said that it's absurd that Pakistan's repayments on its huge foreign debts are far higher, far higher than the amount of money that is being asked for in the UN flood response uh, appeal to help millions affected by the country's um, worst flooding in its history. The UN is asking uh, for $1.2 billion for immediate relief, whereas, as I said, it's $5.5 billion at least which go out of the country to service our debt. So I think they all shall also have to uh, rationalize their demand. Of course, there is a dire need. We definitely need a new taxation regime. The rich need to be taxed more. Uh, a lot of privileges that, are, that accompany the, these big offices of, of generals, of prime minister, of the president, they must go. Uh, but bringing about a reform in such a financial crunch, I think it's, it's unrealistic. And I'm sure they'll revise their demands as well, now that the World Bank has come up with its um, estimates of, uh, of the damages. Don't ask me a difficult question. I don't, I don't yeah. want to ask a question. I just would like to make a brief comment from a slightly different point of view. And that is the point of view of a linguist who has done linguistic field work in some of the mountainous areas in the north, which were in the early stages of floods very heavily hit. So, in particularly in the Indus Stone area and in the Swap Valley, there are lots of very small and fragile communities who speak languages with small, small numbers of speakers, uh, whose languages are falling in the category of endangered languages. Now, many people who live in those areas have had their houses washed away, their fields washed away, lost their place to live, lost their means of livelihood. So, in order to survive, many of those people are going to have to go down country to the cities to live, to earn some money. And it often happens that when people do that, they leave their home villages and go to the city, they don't come back. So this will further weaken and make more fragile these already fragile small communities and the languages that they speak and accelerate the process of loss of these endangered languages. So that was another aspect that maybe has not been brought out in the news. Yeah, I mean, we actually need to empathize with those small communities living um, in the countries. On a brief note, in 19, I think uh, in 2006, a German um, member of parliament was visiting Pakistan, and um, it was in 2007, I guess, when you know suicide bombings were all over. Um, 
she came and uh, we just had a, uh, an informal dinner and she asked me after like half an hour of discussion about the explosive political situation, what do you think Pakistan is about? Can you give me one sentence? And you know, for a, I was lost for a while. A couple of minutes I pondered and she said, you need to give me one or two sentences. What do you know? What is Pakistan? Then um, I just recollected and said, you know, I, from the childhood, what I know of Pakistan is it's a country with 19 peaks, over 7,000 meters, and then seven of them, like 8,000 meters. And we go down to the Indian Ocean, to the Arabian Sea. So it's such a diverse country, it offers so much. And she said, precisely this is what you should be marketing, not about what you have been telling me about the suicide bombings and misgovernance. And so it's also, I think, has been a problem of marketing, how we market our country. So a lot of people, I think, uh, somebody in medicine uh, three days ago was talking about that, um, that Pakistanis tend to be very cynical, self-destructive, and they lack confidence. And that is also that also has, I think, damaged um, the image of the country, rather deteriorated the image of the country. There's a man who uh, lights up a cigarette every 10 minutes. He's a man who listens patiently, who doesn't speak much. He's a man um, who always quotes the Constitution. He says, you know, I just want to go by my role, constitutional role, and I would expect others also to abide by what the Constitution envisions for them, the Prime Minister, the President. And he's not unlike uh, Pres uh, General Musharraf. He's very sort of cool cat, I would say. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is how, I mean, if I were to analyze, Times of India actually ran uh, an analysis of him and half of it actually came from me because their correspondent called me up, you know, how can you describe the person? So I think he's a, he's a man who's been very cool, not ambitious at all, and who knew that the mess that General Pervez Musharraf created could be removed, handled only by staying away from politics. He has played a role. You know, the restoration of the Chief Justice on 16th of March last year wouldn't probably have come about without his intervention. There um, yeah, I think a few other occasions. And the, the kind of um, Washington's view on Pakistan has changed you know, in the last two years. It's because of Kiani, I would say. You know, he told us uh, this nice story of his uh, first meeting on board the Abraham Lincoln in the Indian Ocean. Him and the ISI chief sitting across the table to five American generals in July 2008. And both trying to just sound out, you know, explaining to each other, both sides, what are the limitations, what are the problems. So their love affair, the Americans' love affair with Kiani began there. 
And he, I think, went on to develop a very good personal rapport uh, with Patrice and with Admiral Mullen. And they're still, I think, very good friends with Admiral Mullen. Patrice, having gone to Afghanistan, has changed colors. Uh, so he's, I think, inviting maybe some trouble, unnecessary trouble, because it's, it's altogether different when you are sitting in the hot spot yourself. And he wants to replicate his Iraq experience in Afghanistan, uh, which will be a failure. Knowing the ground realities there, it's simply the situation is entirely different. So is, is that enough? As far as we know or knew, Bukti never represented any separatist or nationalist movement per se. He simply was demanding justice for Balochistan. But um, yeah, what else? The and there was not never a real nationalistic movement in Balochistan actually. Because when you say there's a nationalist movement, that should uh, include a lot of cross-sections of the society. It should have a lot of following within the society. Uh, it never has been the case. I mean, if, when a few people decide to pick up guns, uh, would you call it a, like a, a nationalist insurgency, nationalist movement, uh, in underrepresentation? Uh, economic injustice, yeah, there's a lot of economic injustice, deprivations. As I said in the in the outset, uh, it's the most backward province. You know, we get gas, natural gas from this province, but the people in Quetta, the capital of Balochistan, were the last one to get that gas. We had it first in Islamabad, like 25 years ago. So somehow the the government in uh, in Islamabad has to respond to the grievances of the Balochi population of uh, Balochistan. Without that, I mean, you can't uh, uh, win the hearts and minds of the people. Uh, you want to uh, retain in your federation. And there has to be, I think, uh, imaginative and effective redressal of the grievances and concerns of the Balochis. There's no doubt about it. It seems strange to me that there hasn't been one question regarding the flood itself, <laughs> the flooding itself, and what the implications are of that event. Just a bit of weather. Today, in Tokyo, you have a UN conference meeting on biodiversity. 15,000 scientists from around the world have gathered there. They know that what they're doing there is a total waste of time. The pest spinter is so thick you can cut it with a knife. It is so thick because they know 
that within another 10 years, uh, this, is a word, this is a word from the scientific community, that within another 10 years, uh, the tipping point will have been reached and there will be nothing that we can do about it. Yeah, you're right. This has also been part of debate um, within Pakistan. Uh, you know, the, the deluge that uh, we suffered as a result of uh, the collusion of the western winds and the monsoon rains was so massive. Uh, it, uh, had we had a few dams, water reservoirs on the way, perhaps the damages would have been less. Uh, but still, these dams wouldn't have been enough to retain water and prevent further flooding of, of the region. Because as you saw, there are five rivers coming down from the north and then merging into this mighty Indus, uh, which was swollen for so many days. And the, the rains actually continued for almost more than a week. And therein, I think, and this is what we're, uh, the scientists are warning that might happen another four or five years. It's going to be a cycle. Um, and perhaps uh, it then provides an opportunity for the government, for the state institutions now to, to accelerate work on water reservoirs. Uh, yes, I mean, you're right. This is uh, the, the water, uh, the, the weather patterns are changing and they are going to affect uh, countries like Pakistan more. I mean, in Russia, we are having, you know, extreme temperatures, heat, forest burning, and on the same time, we were, there was uh, incessant rains in Pakistan. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. It should be more done, and there, it has been a massive failure on the part of Pakistan. Um, we credit, credit it also to General Pervez Musharraf that in nine years, he couldn't, um, he failed in bringing about a consensus on at least bring, starting work on um, w w undisputed, non-controversial water reservoirs. So he was into a lot of political rhetoric, uh, gimmickry, but uh, no substantial work done as far as water reservoirs was concerned. Okay? Thank you very much. Yeah.